Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is DC Entrepreneur with your host, George Macharco, here at WERA 96.7. I'm here today with Matt Blitz. Matt is a writer for Washingtonian, Smithsonian.com, Popular Mechanics, amongst others. Welcome today, Matt. Hey, how's it going? So now you uh, you write for Washingtonian Magazine. Yeah. Um, talk to me about some of the stories that you covered recently sure. about what's going on in Washington. So, sure. Uh, for the, uh, this month, uh, the June issue, I wrote about uh, 10 historic uh, D.C. music historic places. So it covered things like um, uh, Bo Diddley's house or where Duke Ellington lived or where Lowell George uh, died in Arlington. Um, so that's the most recent article I wrote. Uh, it was pretty interesting to research and, and visit some of these places because uh, I don't think people realize that the, the music scene in D.C., it's where jazz at least developed its, its voice here. Yeah. Especially on U Street. U Street, right? That's yeah. just where you hear, like, uh, you know, the legendary jazz musicians were here. Right. Obviously, Duke Ellington grew up right. in the area and, and was based out of here. Right. I've heard that Bohemian Caverns, yes. uh, one of the longest-serving jazz clubs in the it's area, closed. is now closed. Yeah. Yeah, closed um, in March or April, unfortunately. And uh, that was a place where a lot of huge, big-name acts played throughout the years. Um, and they had actually a lot of... Um, it, it closed, reopened, closed throughout the years, uh, but throughout the whole its whole history, they just uh, it was a very historic place for music. Yeah, and then uh, you also serve in the capacity with Atlas Obscura as the head of Obscura Society DC, right? And uh, in that, you you do event planning uh, mm-hmm. for kind of curious, interesting events that are based in the DC area. Correct. Yeah. So. My job for them is to uh, curate, find, document, and plan these adventures, as I like to call them. And uh, we seek out and we create real-world explorations. You know, So in this day and age, people go online and, and they can read about these unique places they didn't know anything about. But it's more interesting, I think, and I think a lot of people think, it's more interesting to go to these places, discover them, learn about the backstory with other people to create a community around discovering these unique historical locations, uh, places that you didn't know it about, things that have a certain amount of whimsy. Um, so we like to create a community of explorers. So talk to me about some of the events that you did on Obscura Day sure. that happened just recently on right. April 16th. Right. So we had 10 events uh, in this area. Uh, we had all the way from Silver Spring, Maryland, all the way to to Virginia, and so it was great. We um, one of the probably one of the coolest events we did was uh, talked about Houdini in D.C. So uh, Harry Houdini, the great magician, not only did he perform in D.C., he also came here to speak in front of Congress to speak out against some of the um, the fortune tellers that were taking advantage of people. And so we for that we we uh, had a Houdini collector, one of the this gentleman lives in Bethesda, and he has a huge collection of not just Houdini um, memorabilia, but uh, magic uh, uh, memorabilia as well. And he brought his collection, and we talked about it. We talked about, like, Houdini's story and also his influence in D.C. And then we saw a magic show in, in Farragut Square um, from a magician who based all his, 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 uh, his act on Harry Houdini. 
It was really cool. So we first met on the tour of the Octagon House. Yes. And yeah. uh, I thought that was a great event. Um, it was interesting because we had access that you wouldn't necessarily see right, that's what on we... regular tours. So can you talk to me about how the process is that you work with some of the different historians and, and places in the area sure. to get kind of those access tours where you can actually see things that you wouldn't necessarily see? Sure, yeah. Um, what's really cool about what we do is that exactly what you said. We get access. We get stories that you don't normally would get on a normal tour. If you went with a school group, you went with it on a normal tour, we don't. we do something different. Uh, for example, the Octagon House, it wasn't just simply a tour of the Octagon House. We also learned about the ghost stories, the stories that have been told for years about supposedly the ha- most haunted place in D.C., why those ghost stories actually weren't really ghost at all. And that's something that you don't normally get on a regular tour. Um, and so not only that, we also brought some artifacts that you don't normally get to see. Uh, so, yeah, working with these institutions, organizations is great. And it's usually nothing more than just reaching out and saying, this is who we are. This is what we do. Uh, we have a great group of people that come out for this stuff. And especially here, a lot of these smaller institutions and organizations want to reach out to the community that we appeal to because it's, um, it's a community that is curious. It's a community that enjoys uh, learning, and it's a community that is engaged. And so these places really like to work with us, and we like to work with them because of those reasons. Great. And how did you get involved with Atlas Obscure in the first place, right. and how did how did it begin to develop? So this, about five or six years ago, when I lived in Los Angeles, um, I worked in television. And so if you know anything about television, you know there's hiatuses. So you work on a show for six months, and then you have a two or three month, essentially, summer vacation. And so during these hiatuses, I would go, as any nerd would do, I went to the museums or the unknown locations of Los Angeles. I remember very particular, I went to this place called the um, the Hollywood Heritage Museum, which is across the street from the Hollywood Bowl. Everyone passes it every day because it's right on, it's right in the middle of Hollywood. But it's a small little house kind of in the back that no one goes to. So I, I was like, I, so I went there and I was kind of looking around and just taking notes. And somebody asked me, oh, how did you hear about us? And I go, oh, Atlas Obscura. You know, I hadn't, I wasn't working from the time. I just simply used the website to inform my activities. And she's like, oh, the, the editor in chief was just here uh, recently, gave me the card. So I emailed um, her name is Rachel James, emailed her, and I ended up writing some articles. And then eventually, I just kind of got swept into it. And so I started running, I started doing events in Los Angeles. This was like four or five years ago. And it went fantastic. And so when I moved here, I actually opened the chapter here and in Philadelphia as well. And ever since then, it's just been, uh, it's great, because for someone like me, who not only loves this stuff, but also loves meeting people with similar interests, it, it all goes hand in hand with what I with my writing, with my other uh, ventures. It, it just all works so well together that I meet that when I, I create these events, I work with institutions, but I also meet other people such as yourself um, on these events that, you know, that just kind of broadens my my scope and broadens my network, which is fantastic. So uh, so you just mentioned Hollywood. Uh, so right. <laughs> tell me about your experiences uh, sure. working in the industry. Yeah, so I, I lived out there for eight years. I worked on a variety of television shows, some more successful than others. My first job was on CSI Miami. Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember uh, interacting with David Caruso. I was, I was just the guy getting lunch, so I wasn't any, any big shot on that show, but it was, it was fun. And then I uh, ended up working on a bunch of other shows, including um, How I Met Your Mother. I was a, like a writer's assistant for them. So I, uh, I basically was, I took notes to the writers, and I put out scripts. 
And then I ended up writing on a CNN show and a variety of other new shows that, again, were some more successful than others. That's the th- interesting thing about Hollywood or about working in television is that shows just vanish. Like they just get canceled or they just don't fulfill the, the orders. And it has nothing to do with what you do. It's just the what happens. And so you could be in a uh, on a show for three, four years, and that's really successful. That's fantastic. I mean, that's 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 security. Um, or you could be on a show that you're excited about, and then within seven weeks, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it forced it forced me to realize that like nothing is permanent, and so the only thing that is permanent is what I create. So that's when I actually when I um, started working on shows that I was excited about but didn't last very long. I realized. I needed to create my own content, and that meant writing for various publications. Um, and so that's kind of how I got into that because it kind of, like I said, it forced me to realize the only person looking out for myself is myself <laughs> in some ways. Um, so I uh, started creating my own content, and that's kind of where I got – that's kind of the beginning of where I got myself to today. Excellent. So yeah. being a writer, uh, writing for various publications, you have to have an entrepreneurial streak. Right. Talk to me about how you manage um, pitching your stories to different publications right. and how you treat that out like a business. Right. So I currently write but for five publications, six publications, <laughs> and then um, the Obscure Society of DC. And so it's all about the relationship you have with the your editor, essentially. Um, you know, I've had editors who want you to pitch them much more formally, and then I have editors who just say, oh, give me one line. And, you know... And it's it's interesting because it's um, it's all about the relationships, and it's also in this day and age the relationships are all over email. Sure, and, yeah. You know, and I always try to I always try to meet with people, but sometimes, uh, for example, I write for um, several publications which are based in New York. I haven't met them because they're in New York. I'm sure if I went to New York, I would I would meet with them. Um, but I always for Washingtonian, I go in and pitch them face to face because it's Washingtonians here. Um, same with Arlington Magazine. And so um, it's all about the, it's the relationships you have with the editors. And it's 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 interesting because it's, it's people skills. It, that's what it's kind of – it's how to write an email. You know, it's actually – it's how to write, write short pitches that get to the point. Um, it's about how you express yourself in the written word and not just in articles but also over email. And it's how you – how enthousiastic, enthusiastic you are too – because, you know, there's the perception of the writer being this curmudgeon who's grumpy. But I always – my personal preference is to be enthusiastic about everything. And I think it's got me more jobs than um, than not by just being excited about what I'm pitching them and being enthusiastic and saying yes to almost everything. So in a sense, whenever you're your own brand, mm-hmm. how do you develop a theme towards your content? Right. Do, do you do that yourself or is that something that your editors kind of steer in that direction? No, I've done it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, my theme is – or my um, my brand, I guess, is odd history or history you didn't know about. Um, and it goes hand-in-hand with the Obscure Society. So for Pop and Mechanics, I write about these weird histories like I was telling you about that I, uh, I just turned in an article about the history of the vacuum cleaner. Um, and I, you know, I've written about the history of the the escalator, or I wrote about um, uh, where have you gone, Miss Atomic Bomb, about these uh, women who posed in front of um, the Nevada test sites in front of uh, mushroom clouds, and they were basically um, uh, advertisements. And anyway, so I, I write about histories you didn't know about for Papa Mechanics, and same I write for Food and Wine as well, 
same thing. So I just turned in an article about, um, uh, uh, well, I, I'm actually working on an article about uh, why Ethiopian, why, why there are more Ethiopians in D.C. than any other place in the, the country or the world outside of Africa and why Ethiopian food is so prevalent here. Yeah, I mean, it's um, a huge diaspora. I mean, right. mainly centered around Adams Morgan, but really Street, throughout actually. the whole center. Yeah. yeah, and it used to be Adams Morgan, but they mm-hmm. since moved because prices went up. So mm-hmm. they moved to Ninth and U, and there's actually uh, uh, th- two to three dozen Ethiopian businesses on one city block on Ninth and U. And it's really interesting. Anyway, so and so for Food and Wine, Pop and Mechanics, and then for Washingtonian. So, yeah, so my column every month for Washingtonian is 10... It, 10 historical things in Washington you didn't know about. So like I said, I, you know, I wrote about the 10 uh, D.C. music histories you didn't know about. Um, I've written about the 10, uh, 10 Thanksgiving-themed histories you didn't know about in D.C. for in November. And then I wrote about uh, uh, 10 winter storms you didn't, you, you didn't realize it happened in D.C. So it's, it's all very much the same brand and same theme, which is cool that I have kind of got that market a little bit. <laughs> right. And so how do you go about developing a story? Is it something that just kind of is in your mind and begins yeah. to gestate? Or is it something where, you know, you have a plan for the ideas that you want to yeah. you write, write about? I uh, I like to just get out in the world and travel, um, not just travel across the world or the country, but like get out into the city and just, I always bring my notebook. And I always I always have that eye of like, how could this make a good story? You know, I was I just took a trip to Nashville and Memphis and we took a tour of Sun Studio, which rock and roll was born there. So I wrote in my notebook. I'm like, oh, how how distorting and how mixing and how recording played into creating the sound of rock and roll. So using knowing what, I, you know, the publications I write for, mm-hmm. using that to inform stories of things that I am doing on my own time. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, people love what they do so i love what i do so whenever i go somewhere i'm always combining the two even if it's for pleasure even if it's the vacation i went on i'm always thinking how can i turn this into a story because i that's how my mind works and i love doing that stuff um yeah so i, I went to portland uh, last month and nike headquarters and so i just pitched them a, a story about uh, the nike nike's holy grail which was this waffle iron that they dug up <laughs> Waffle uh, iron. Yeah. So okay. the bottom of the Nike shoes, uh-huh. uh, especially in the beginning, will have this very distinctive pattern, right? And so the story goes that this guy, I forget his name, but this guy uh, used his waffle iron to create this distinctive pattern. Then because he lived in a rural spot of Portland or rural spot of Oregon, they buried and burned their trash. So they buried and burned this waffle iron. A few years ago, the kids were selling the house because he had passed away, and they realized the Holy Grail was buried somewhere in the backyard and they dug up and found it. And now Nike has this burned wolf iron in their museum. And I think that's such a, such a cool story of how like this iconic brand created, you know, was created using a common household appliance that they have recently found again. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. So, so anyway. do, do you find that sometimes the stories just come to you because you have kind of the antenna pointed in that direction? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And, uh, Yeah. It's it's the light bulb always goes on no matter what I'm doing. And it's it's really cool. And it's um, it takes a lot of training, I think, in some ways to always have that the antenna pointed or the light bulb on. But now it's whatever I go out in the world, I'm always looking for the 
the interesting story. So, so Matt, tell us about some of the curiosities that we have in the Washington area, some of the right. interesting landmarks that people might not know about that they should really check out. Right. So um, I've actually been into Rock Creek Park recently because I'm, I'm doing a story about Rock Creek Park. But also, uh, I think it's a fa- – I mean, it's it, D.C.'s first national park. And um, so the Capitol Stones in Rock Creek Park, do you know about the Capitol Stones? I expect that they probably came from the Capitol and were right. extricated so, and moved somewhere else. Right. So in the 50s, during the Eisenhower administration, they did a, uh, a renovation of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And these stones that were um, that were taken off the Capitol were just placed in Rock Creek Park. They, uh, they were, they, some of these stones date back to the early 19th century. Uh, and you can actually look at these stones and see, like, carvings and uh, different... In fact, I went out there with an architecture historian, and he described how you can see how they broke the stone. Basically, they poured water into some of the creases, froze it, and it, and then and then let it unfreeze, and it cracked the stone. And that's how they used to do these things in the early 19th century. And so these stones are now near Rock Creek Park Nature Center with moss growing on them. They, they're 200-year-old 200 200 stones. And it, I think it's super interesting because, like I said, you can kind of go there and look around and learn about how buildings got built 200 years ago. And, of course, their cousins are the columns from the, 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 the Capitol are now at the National Arboretum on display. Everyone goes see them. But these stones are just buried in Rock Creek Park. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I knew about the columns but did not know yeah. about the stones. And then the Carter Baron Amphitheater in Rock Creek Park is also super interesting. It was built in the uh, 50s by a movie exe- – or it, the project was pushed by a movie executive named Carter uh, Carter Baron. And he lived in D.C., and he thought that the Rock Creek Park deserved a open-air theater, an amphitheater. And so now we don't – you know, they have shows there, but it's not as nearly as numerous. But I recently learned that during the 60s and 70s, um, Bruce Springsteen played there, Ray Charles played there, Ella Fitzgerald played there, like huge big-name acts in the, in the middle of the city in this open-air theater – uh, and in fact, uh, one reviewer said about Ella Fitzgerald that it was simply magic just to hear her voice uh, resonate off this glen of trees. And it's, I don't think we realize, I mean, it's Carter Baron th- Amphitheater still there, but we don't realize how cool and historic it was. And, you know, the boss played there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I remember you mentioning that you um, did a tour underneath DuPont Circle in the yeah. underground. Yeah. And, and now they've just recently reopened that. So they have an art display in there. I'm going on Friday. I got okay. tickets for Friday. Yeah. Great, great. Um, so how did you get access to um, the DuPont Underground and, and even really think to you know create a, a tour about this? Right. So that was about a year ago when we did that tour with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I knew it was there. I mean, it's it's an old trolley station. It's basically I did some research into it. And, you know, we all complain about the metro today. People complain about the trolleys back then, too, about how the congestion, how they always broke down, how. You know, they never ran on time. Same complaints that we have about the Metro. We, they complained about the trolleys back then. So they had an underground station in DuPont to try to alleviate some of this um, this congestion. And so it only was open for about 14, 15 years. And, and then it closed up. Actually, the whole trolley system closed up in D.C. in the early 60s. And then it got, um, in the 90s, it got turned into a, a food court, an underground food court. It didn't go well. Uh, and so they closed it up. And so this nonprofit, DuPont Underground, has since um, tried to turn into like an arts and events space. And yeah, and so to me, that's always, I always find that interesting about these urban, old urban areas or these 
historic locations that are being revamped or being redone to create a uh, to make them more modern, but also hold what made them so interesting in the past still there. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just I just essentially just reached out and said, hey, we find this really interesting. Can you do a tour for us? And they said, yeah. I mean, so usually it's nothing more than that. Just say, just email or a call or just a visit saying, what you guys do is really interesting. We have this group who would love to come. Can we make this work? And usually it does. Yeah, it, It's fascinating because I remember reading about that in a list of uh, disused train stations around yeah. the world. And they, they had written it up. Uh, they were talking about, you know, former uh, London tube stations that were no longer used and were used as bunkers during World War II. Right. And like, here we have like this hidden resource in D.C. that you know, a lot of people walk over top of it and don't even know about it. No, no, they do not. I think they know about it a little more today just simply because it's been in the news more. Right. Um, and like you said, they have that whole... The, the balls from the um, the beach at the uh, National Buildings Museum's exhibit last year got transferred there, and that's what the art uh, exhibit is. So it's all these balls from the beach. Um, and they're repurposing it for repurposing, this space. Right. Yeah, right, right. That's, that's awesome. I mean, it's really cool whenever they do things like that. So how do you think the city is doing its job of preserving some of the historic uh, buildings and artifacts that we have here in relation to, you know, all the development, all the cranes that you see up? I think this city does it better than most cities. I mean, it's it's D.C., and there's a lot of professionals, a lot of people here who are here for that reason. Um, so I think D.C. does this much better. I mean, I don't know tons about New York, but I've been to New York, and it feels like that city is just built on top of itself yeah. <laughs> constantly. <laughs> and in some ways here, that's not as much as the case, I think. Um, even when it's could be the case, there's a lot of people that always come out like, oh, that's an historic house or that you know and i i i honestly think that um because of the nature of what this city is and all the professionals here we do a much better job than other cities and los angeles too i mean los angeles is the historic preservation in los angeles is much more niche than it is here for a variety of reasons it's a smaller uh community that does this stuff but I also, you know, I've actually noticed in America recently, in the last 15 years, you know, in the 90s, some of these places got torn down, didn't think twice. Now, in the last 15, 20 years, I feel like there's a appreciation of the past that did not exist. I think, I think as we've gotten older as a country, we realize that we need to do a better job preserving what made us who we are. And I, I actually have noticed that in the last 20 years, that as a whole, America's doing a better job of trying to preserve their past. There's a certain amount of compromise that needs to be done, right? Because we always need to improve. We always need to create new spaces. But we also want to preserve the past. So the compromise is to keep these ex- these exteriors. I mean, it's called repurposing. Keep these exteriors, but put a, a CrossFit or a yoga studio in there. But at least there's an awareness of what this place used to be and now what it is today. And so there's there's a compromise. You know, in Los Angeles, there's an area called Broadway, which is all these huge old theaters that have been there since the 1920s and 30s. And a lot of these theaters are now in disuse today. But recently, in the last five years, some of them have been turned. One of them, got, for example, got turned into an Urban Outfitters. And so the exterior, the marquee is still there. The exterior is still there. When you go inside, you still see the, the beautiful vaulted ceilings. But it's an Urban Outfitters. It's a compromise. You know, like, it, obviously, it's a, it's a commercial store. But, but, it's, but they've kept these signatures there, too, which is nice. So Arlington Magazine. Right. So you've... Started writing for Arlington I just Magazine. Turned in my first article, and uh, so we'll be out June fifteenth. 
And, and uh, I remember that you also had some background, like doing improv work, yeah. right? With uh, was it UCB? Yeah, yeah, and I O Improv Olympic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in Los Angeles, so I was a, uh, a head writer for political political sketch show there at I O, and then I went through the the program and did some shows at UCB as well. And uh, improv really teaches you how to write, because you don't really understand how people really talk until you are put in a situation where you're forced to say something, right? So. In improv, you're supposed to react to the, your partner in the scene, right? And you're supposed to react. You're not even, they teach you not even to try a joke. Don't even try to be funny. They teach you to just react naturally. Like, what would you say in this situation? And learning those, that skill and learning how to do that, learning people talk, how do people talk naturally, allowed me to become a better writer. Um, and I know there's a plenty of uh, improv places in D.C. that do classes and uh, – I think improv is a really, really cool skill to have for, as a writer. And also, I think for a lot of people, if you're into public speaking, if you're in, if you're a salesperson, if you're in business, improv really teaches you how to interact with people. Um, and that's an important skill to have for for many, many uh, industries and yeah. jobs. Yeah. Jobs. Yeah. One of the things they always tout is like the listening skills that it develops, yeah. you know, really, you know, trying to listen to what's going on in that scene. But yeah, exactly. And react appropriately to what the person said, not just trying to get your words in or your jokes in, it's reacting to what the person said, and that's listening to what they said. Um, they really, especially UCB, they really push that, and it's it feels really natural, and it really it helps learn people skills. Thanks so much for taking the time to Thank speak with us today, Matt. Yeah. I post all my stories on Twitter, usually, so check me out there. W-H-Y Blitz. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks so thanks. much for taking the time today. Thanks. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, and connect with us on our blog, dc-entrepreneur.com If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode and thanks for listening.